Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear John Marco Ceresi. You're just mad because my dad fucked your wife before you did. <laughs> that and more. But before that, I want to talk to you about a podcast that has a very special place in my heart, and that is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, which is hosted by Paul Gilmartin, a good friend of the show, who's told some incredible stories on risk in the past. I've been a guest on the Mental Illness Happy Hour. It's just such a real and raw and unpretentious place that mostly creative people have conversations about their mental health history. They've gotten some beautiful quotes in the press that really kind of, I think, nail what the show is all about. The New York Times said, a perversely safe space in which Paul and his guests talk about their fears and addictions and traumatic childhoods. Uh, Esquire said it's a vital and compassionate gem that fills a desperate and under-addressed need in our society. It's very simpatico with what we do here at risk because it can be hilariously funny. It can move you to tears. It's people just being as real and raw and honest as they can about their most personal thoughts and feelings. So check it out. The Mental Illness Happy Hour hosted by Paul Gilmartin wherever you get your podcasts or at mentalpod.com. Also, these days you can get practically everything you want on demand like this podcast you're listening to now, you can listen whenever you want, when it's convenient for you. So why are you still taking trips to the post office to mail letters and packages when you can get postage on demand with Stamps.com? With Stamps.com, you can access all the amazing services of the post office from your desk 24-7 when it's convenient for you. You can buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter, any package using your own computer and printer, and then the mail carrier picks it up. You just click, print, mail. Now you're done. Couldn't be easier. Now, we have used Stamps.com here at Risk and the Story Studio for years now, and we've always loved it. So right now, you can use this special offer. It includes up to $55 free postage, a digital scale, and a four-week trial. So don't wait. Go to Stamps.com before you do anything else. Click on the radio microphone at the top of the homepage and type in Risk. That's stamps.com. Enter risk. Now, here's the show. kids this is risk the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share i'm kevin allison this is the bar case behind me now we're calling this week's episode second impressions these are three stories from our new york city shows oh my god we have been traveling so much uh, i was just in kansas and in st louis and atlanta and i'm on my way to florida like <laughs> I was like, okay, wait, let's rewind a little bit and not lose track of some of the stuff we've done here at home in New York City. So that is what we're going to be enjoying today. And there's even more going up on our Patreon right now. If you go to patreon.com slash risk, there's bonus stories going up every week and my weekly check-ins and so many other pieces of content, you know, videos, audio, you can even pronounce it Patreon if you want, like our episode editor, Jeff Barr. Um, you know, I don't want to yuck on your yum. <laughs> if, if that's what floats your boat, go ahead and pronounce it Patreon. <coughs> Patreon. Either way, it's going to take you to a place where you can help keep risk running. Now, in a little bit, we are going to hear from Gianmarco Ceresi, super talented young comedian based in New York City nowadays. But before that, we're going to hear 
A story I just love so very much. I'm not shy about saying I'm in love with with this story. Jamie Brickhouse is one of the most gifted storytellers based in New York City today. You can find him at jamiebrickhouse.com. Here he is now with a story we call Let Me Let You Go. I met my first boyfriend in first grade. I was a precocious child. His name was Eric Munson, and we met during PE class, the way most budding homosexuals meet, far on the sidelines of the playing ground. And it was the 1970s, and we were both in Mrs. Chambers' class, in little old, flat as a flitter, hot and steamy, oil refinery oasis, cancer capital, Beaumont, Texas. Now, while the other boys played a savage game of dodgeball, you know, that barbaric game where they pummel each other with those big red rubber balls? I mean, guys are cruel enough as it is. Why encourage them? But Eric and I sat atop the monkey bars, and we discussed our very favorite episodes of Bewitched. (laughs) Now, for those of you not in the know, Bewitched was that 1960s sitcom about a beautiful blonde witch named Samantha, married to a mortal Darren, and her meddlesome drag queen of a mother, Endora. (laughs) Ah, Endora. With her flaming red hair teased up into giant sausage curls and her long, flowy, sky-blue chiffon gowns that matched her sky-blue eyeshadow, she was eye candy to a couple of boys like Eric and me. And Eric was eye candy to me. I mean, when we met on the playground, he said to me, I sure do like your pretty red hair. And I said, I like your pretty blue eyes. His eyes were the color of the aquamarine ring that Mrs. Chambers wore. And he had blonde hair, and it was so light, it was almost white. And they called boys with hair that color toeheads, which I thought was an ugly name for something so beautiful. And he even had little wisps of it on his forearms like a man. Now, I didn't know the term turned on in those days but I think I was turned on by those little wisps of hair. So pretty soon, Eric and I were playing Bewitched on a regular basis. But in our version, Darren didn't exist. (laughs) Samantha and Adora galloped across Europe using their powers freely. Now, I played Samantha. Eric was so homosexually advanced, he played Endora. He could perfectly mimic her drag queen gestures as he'd cast spells with a tornado of whirling arms and sucked in cheeks and arched eyebrows. Vroom! (laughs) Eric could always outdo me on the sissy fabulous scale. Now, Mrs. Chambers was as equally enamored of me and my pretty red hair as Eric was, and my feelings for her were mutual. I mean, she had a big personality and a bubble of brunette hair and bright makeup that was punctuated by frosted pink lips. Three times a day, she would pull an amethyst glass atomizer from her desk drawer and spray, 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 spray herself with what I imagined was Chanel number no. five. She was like a movie star to me, and she loved teaching, and she loved me. Jamie, you're my star pupil. I see a big future for you. And she loved fostering creativity in the classroom, especially in the afternoons during coloring and writing time. And it was during those times that Eric would write his love poems for me on manila paper with Crayolas. Roses are red, violets are blue, your red hair is pretty, and so are you. I know, very sweet. And I was really proud of that, and I showed it to Mrs. Chambers. I mean, in my innocence, I didn't think there was anything to be ashamed of. I just thought it was what it was, which was one person displaying their affection for another. 
And when I showed it to her, she didn't gush and say, oh, Jamie, isn't that wonderful? Like she did about all the creations I showed her. Instead, she just kind of cocked her head to the side and said, well, now, isn't that something? Now, Eric and I played after school together at each other's houses and on the weekends, but in the evenings, almost every evening, we had long phone conversations. And we took cues from how our mothers spoke on the phone. So I would cradle the receiver between my ear and my shoulder and mock file my nails, <laughs> or I'd lethargically twirl the long, squiggly cord like a jump rope. And we'd have conversations like this. Eric would say, now, honey, I'm not going to be at Bridge Circle tomorrow. I'm getting my hair done. So don't you let those girls talk ugly about me while I'm not there. <laughs> oh, honey, I would say, I've got your back. And I would end all of the conversations the exact same way. Well, let me let you go. <laughs> Which is how my mother ended her phone conversations when it was really she who wanted to be let go. It's the Southern way of dropping someone. So after first grade, Eric and I, we no longer had the same teachers into second and third grade, but we remained best friends, best girlfriends. And I also remained really close with Mrs. Chambers, kind of besties with her too. And we had the same birthday. And I even got to spend it with her and her family in her mansion that she lived out in the country with. And I started hanging out after school if I wasn't playing with Eric and her classroom as her special little helper. I loved those afternoons because she would take me into her confidence and give me the lowdown and the gossip of what was going on with her current crop of students. Travis Boudreau can't seem to concentrate. He's what they call hyperactive. But now Kathleen Winslow is one of my star pupils. Very creative, just like you were. I loved it. I loved being talked to like an adult I told you I was a precocious child, and even my kindergarten teacher had noted it in my report card. She said, Jamie seems to favor the company of adults over children his own age. And I was like, well, duh. I mean, you know, adults know things. <laughs> so on one of those after-school afternoons, Mrs. Chambers calls me over to her desk. Jamie, I want to have a little talk with you. I loved little talks with big people. I ran over to her desk, and I looked up at her. Jamie, do you know the word sissy? I looked at her, and her head was cocked like that time I showed her one of Eric's love poems. Jamie, do you know what a sissy is? And my eyes focused in on her frosted pink lips as she said, sissy. Uh, I think so. I don't know if I knew or if I intuitively knew, but I felt like I was in trouble. Well, Eric might be one. And the other boys might think you're one, too, if you hang around him too much. Maybe you should take a little break from him for a while. Then she winked and ruffled my red hair. Just something to think about. I don't know how much I thought about it, but after that conversation... Every time Eric came over to play, I kept making up lame excuses why I couldn't. And I suppose at that time, I thought that sissy meant being too girly. And I hadn't been called a sissy, but I had a problem with my name because the boys were constantly making fun of me saying, why do you have a girl's name? Jamie's a girl's name. And then worse, they started calling me Jamie Summers which was the name of the bionic woman, which was a hit TV show at that time. And I was not Jamie Summers. By that point, I was Jill from Charlie's Angels, the Farrah Fawcett role. <laughs> but that was my little secret. And after that conversation with Mrs. Chambers, I thought, maybe if I hang around him, it may not be my little secret anymore. And I thought I had to choose between her and him. And I thought I needed the validation and adult friendship that I had with her. And I remember the last time I saw Eric. He was standing on my front porch, and I had given him yet another lame excuse for why I couldn't play. 
I think I said something like I was going to be playing with the boys down the street, uh, Gunsmoke, this Western TV show, and we both knew that was a fairy tale. <laughs> this time, he didn't protest. He just said, okay. And his aqua blue eyes were moist. To break the awkward moment, I said the only thing I could think of to say. Well, let me let you go. He got on his bike and he pedaled away. Not long after that, my family moved across town to a new house, and so I changed school districts. So I didn't see Eric anymore, or Mrs. Chambers. By the time I hit junior high, I had been called sissy many times, and a lot worse, and Eric was nowhere near me when it happened. But one summer in junior high, I had an epiphany. Mrs. Chambers was right. Eric is a sissy. And you know what? So am I. <laughs> and I got on my bike and I rode across town to his house, determined to resume our game of bewitched, but maybe I'd be daring to his Samantha. I rang the doorbell. A strange man answered. His father? Is Eric home? Who? Eric Munson? Oh, the Munsons. No, they moved to Oklahoma years ago. I was too late. So I grew up, and I shook the dust from my shoes from that oil refinery town in Texas, and I came to New York City to lead my own sissy fabulous life. Thank you very much. Which for me meant a lot of alcohol and drugs. And it was pretty fun for a long time. And, you know, I'd close down the bars in Chelsea and then go to the after-hours clubs and do cocaine. And then I'd wake up in the morning with strangers whose names I didn't know. And then I started waking up in towns whose names I didn't know, like Patterson, New Jersey. <laughs> but after a while, the fabulousness sunk to an alcoholic depression. And I bottomed out on a suicide attempt, an overdose of pills. And after I got sober, I started wondering about Eric a lot. I mean, I'd never forgotten him. I don't know that he was the love of my life, the man that got away, probably more like the best girlfriend who got away. And about four years ago, I tried to find him on Facebook, and I found an Eric Munson that seemed like it was a match, and I sent him a message. And I knew that when he got it, he was going to respond immediately and say, is this Jamie? Jamie Brickhouse from Mrs. Chambers' class? Call me. And I'd call him. And we'd have one of those long phone conversations like we used to have when we were kids. And I'd say, Eric, how are you? Where are you? What have you been up to? And he'd say, girl, I'm fabulous. I'm living in Philadelphia, and I'm a drag queen, and no one can do shares if I could turn back time better than I can. And I would say, I knew that you found a way to channel your talent for mimicking Endora into a fabulous drag queen career. And then I would say, Eric, I'm sorry for letting Mrs. Chambers nip our friendship just as it was flowering. And he'd say, oh, honey, don't worry about it. We were just kids, and she was just a small town cunt. <laughs> But the conversation never happened. I never got a response. And then I recently connected with another classmate from Mrs. Chambers' class who had kept in touch with Eric. And for a minute there, I didn't know who I was talking to because he was a she in first grade. So there must have been something in the waters in that class, or maybe Mrs. Chambers was fostering a creativity she never imagined. <laughs> so, I asked him, you know, what about Eric? Where, where's Eric? Why, how is he? And he said, well, he, um, he never made it far from small towns in Oklahoma and Texas, and he had some serious problems with alcohol and drugs. I said, just like me. I said, I don't know why, but I kind of felt like that might be the case. Wait, had? Where is he now? And my friend said, well, Eric killed himself about four years ago. He ended up in a small redneck town, 30 minutes from Beaumont. Once again, I was too late. 
And I couldn't help but wondering, would it have turned out any differently if I had remained his friend back in elementary school? If I had gotten to his house sooner before he moved away to Oklahoma? If I had reached out to him on Facebook maybe a year earlier? I'll never know. And I'll never get to tell him that I'm sorry for the last words I said to him so many years ago. Well, let me let you go. Thank you. Every young girl needs love and romance. There's one thing she doesn't need. Mother, what are you doing here? What am I doing here? What are you doing here? I'm married. I know. Let you out of my sight for one moment. Every time I see you, you seem to be getting more and more confused. Gee, you're a regular Pollyanna, aren't you? No, I was just teasing. Hello. Um, before I tell this story, round of applause if your parents are divorced. Okay. Okay, so pretty much everyone. Uh, the rest of you, give it a couple more years. So uh, my parents got divorced when I was seven days old. So in this very rare case, it probably was my fault. But it meant that from the time that, since I was very young, I've been going back and forth, mom's house, dad's house, mom's house, dad's house, mom's house, dad's house, until I turned 18 or, you know, died. In which case, there'd be two separate funerals. And then major holidays like Thanksgiving were alternated annually. Everything was pretty much kind of dictated in my life, except for my birthday. Because my birthday was the one time of the year that my parents would say to me, Jamarco, you can spend your birthday at whichever house you like. Yeah. So my birthday, yeah, exactly. So my birthday became the annual tradition of deciding which parent I loved the most. You know, that was my Sophie's choice. But that choice became a lot easier when my mother remarried because then the house I wanted to spend my birthday at was any house my stepfather was not in. And I want to be fair to stepfathers everywhere. The relationship between a stepfather and a stepson, it's literally built to fail. Like, if we were to go along with Freud and say that man's deepest desire is to kill his father and have sex with his mother, what if it's not your father you have to kill, it's just some guy? <laughs> it's a lot easier to do. And not that it was all circumstantial. I mean, I don't want to use his real name, so let's just say my stepfather's name was Dick. I think that just captures his general oeuvre. <laughs> and a Dick, Dick was kind of a prick. I guess you could describe him, he was kind of like a, a Midwestern Putin. He was very intimidating, he was like aggressively straight. He collected red wine, which is like, I'm sorry, that's just Pokemon cards for adults, really. <laughs> and he was, he was the kind of parent that like, even if you were at a petting zoo, he'd be like, don't touch anything. <laughs> but the thing that upset him most was uh, my dad's daily phone calls. Because when I was at my mom's house, my dad would call me once a day. And no matter what I was doing, family dinner or chores, I would just run into my room and talk to my dad for an hour or an hour and a half. Even worse, the phone that my dad would call me on was this, and I'm not bragging here, is this sweet silver Motorola Razor phone <laughs> my mom had gotten me for Hanukkah, which is to say that my stepfather had paid for my mom to give me for Hanukkah. But I, I didn't really care how much it upset my stepfather because for me, my day never felt complete until I spoke with my dad. Which is why it was very strange when I hadn't heard from my father the entire day of my 15th birthday. Now, I'd chosen to spend this one with my mom because I felt like, you know, 10 in a row with my dad, it might hurt her feelings. <laughs> and to celebrate uh, Dick and my mom, they took me to this place called Bethany Beach in Delaware. The birthday itself had been a disaster. In the morning, I was stung by a jellyfish we went to this carnival called Funland, which did not live up to its name at all. As I said, the whole day, I hadn't been able to reach 
my dad. And, and the later it got, the more anxious I grew that like something horrible had happened, like he had been in a car accident or, or he was murdered. Like that's just the way that my mind works, you know? My mom had the brilliant idea that after dinner to distract me, we should all play a game of Monopoly. For those of you with difficult families, you know uh, board games, pretty bad idea. Like, uh, for my family, games were just an excuse to be openly cruel to one another. Every card game was cards against humanity. Our, our Scrabble boards qualified as hate speech. Like, the, the, the only way to win the game of life was to take your own. And even worse, my mom and Dick, they were drinking, so I felt like I was in an Edward Albee play. Like, who's afraid of Mr. Monopoly? And it was like, me, I was. And about five or six hours into the game... I don't know whether my mom had said something snippy to Dick or she had just landed on free parking, but I know that Dick stood up and he said, <clears throat> um, you know what? <clears throat> uh, no more Monopoly. No more Monopoly. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go take Jamarco. We're going to go get some ice cream. Yay. Because <laughs> it was very stressful to leave the house with my stepfather and not my mom. It would be like leaving the American embassy in like North Korea or something. Like, who knows what's going to happen? <laughs> and of course, what does happen is the moment that we reached the car the moment that we're out of earshot of my mom, my cell phone rings, and it's my dad. And I'm about to pick it up when my stepfather says, don't. And I said, oh, uh, do you mind if we do a rain check on the ice cream so I can speak to my father on my birthday? Which you have to understand that that was the sassiest I had ever been to this man in my entire life. But I felt very much in the right. And he said, uh, no. Get in the car. We're getting ice cream. Which is, I think it's the first time anyone's ever said, we're getting ice cream as a threat. <laughs> so we get in the car, he starts it up. Uh, Leonard Skinner's Freebird is playing on the radio, which does not feel apropos. And, uh, you know, I can hear the ringing underneath until it stops, of course. And Dick starts driving the car. And about three or four minutes into the drive, my phone beeps. And it's presumably because my dad had left, like, a very long voicemail explaining why he hadn't called all day. That's when my stepfather turns down the radio. He goes, okay, all right, fine, fine. You can call your father back. But I did not get you that phone to talk to that man. So I call my dad back, and he picks up on the first ring. He's very excited to talk to me. And all I wanted to say to him was, like, could you please pick me up right now? But Bethany Beach is in Delaware. My family's from Maryland. Honestly, I think if I had told him exactly what had happened in that moment, the way my dad is, he probably would have driven up that very night. He probably would have assaulted my stepfather. He might have killed my stepfather the way he is. And then, like, then I'd have to be in court and I'd have to testify against my father because technically it's not illegal to prevent a son from talking to his dad on his birthday. And then my dad would get the chair and my life would be over. Like, that's just the way that my mind works, you know? So I didn't say anything. I told my dad about the great time we had at the beach that morning and uh, this cool place we went to called Funland. And about a minute later, the awning for Sprinkles comes into view. That was the name of the ice cream place. Dick parks the car, and he looks over at me. He goes, wrap it up. So I tell my dad I have to go. We're getting ice cream. And he wants to talk longer, but I'm like, I I just, I really want this ice cream right now. So I hang up the phone, and Dick just grabs it out of my hand. And he says, I'll be holding on to this for the rest of the trip. And so I turned to him, and I said, You're just mad because my dad fucked your wife before you did. (laughs) So we ended up not getting ice cream. (laughs) So the whole trip was for naught, really. Then we went back home. I told my mom what had happened. And like she was, it was the first time she ever stood up for me to my stepfather. She was like, I'm going to, I'm going to take him in the car, take him back home right now. And I was like, maybe in the morning, mom, you're quite drunk. And then they went to the room. They had an epic fight. The first of many epic fights that would ultimately lead years later to their divorce. What's so strange is like the gradual dissolution of their marriage actually brought me and my stepfather closer together. Two years later, after the birthday embargo, I was in my bedroom, and my stepdad knocked on the door and then entered without waiting for an answer, of course, and he said, uh, uh, <clears throat> Hey, uh, Jamarco, you want to you go for a jog? Yay. <laughs> Maybe on the way back we can finally get that ice cream. So we go for a jog, and, and this is a recreation of that jog. We had maybe jogged three blocks, I'm him, so it's kind of like this was... 
hey, <clears throat> let's walk for a bit. <laughs> Why do you think your mother's so unhappy? It's like, God, I'm 17, motherfucker. Does childhood mean nothing to you people? <laughs> but one awkward jog after another, we grew closer and closer and closer together. And I realized that we did have one big thing in common, and it's that we both had very difficult relationships with my mother. As I grew older, things that bothered me about him in my youth, I found quite good, like his very starched nature actually made him quite dependable when I was in a pickle. I found out that I love red wine. I'm a big fan. (laughs) Big fan. Even after... Dick and my mother got divorced, even though he had no legal obligation, he helped me through college, he helped me financially after college, because this is essentially what I do for a living. He's the co-signer on my lease. I was just at a second and hopefully last marriage. It was my birthday this past August, and my stepfather, Dick, was the first to call. Thank you very much. This is Gizmo Varias behind me now, and we just heard from Gianmarco Ceresi. You can find Gianmarco at GianmarcoCeresi.com. That's G-I-A-N-M-A-R-C-O-S-O-R-E-S-I.com. The tables of contents for all Risk episodes are on the listen pages at risk-show.com. You can even do keyword searches for subject matter of stories or storytellers' names. Now, I am so excited because for months I've been going back and forth about what to do about my parents and the Risk book. Because the Risk book, it's hilarious. It's terrifying, it's heartbreaking and tear-jerking, it's everything that risk tends to be. It's some of our very most intense stories, some of our most hilarious, some of our most beautiful stories that we've ever shared on the show, and of course, stories that have never been on the show before as well, and interviews with the storytellers. But the thing of it is, you know, I knew that a lot of it was just going to be too goddamn intense for my parents, especially stuff like me tying my shoes to my balls, you know. Our producer, J.C. Cassis, had her mother read the book and, and she said that I'm disgusting now that she's read that. So I finally got up the nerve to have a telephone conversation with my mom and dad and I told them that I requested they not buy the book, that I don't want them to read the book. And they agreed They readily agreed. So I'm so excited about that. But that's one more copy of the book that's not going to be pre-ordered, folks. So you've got to make up for it. And don't assume anyone else is. You get on that right now and text to the number 900-900, the word RISK, and that'll take you right into the pre-ordering process. Or if you want, you can just go to theriskbook.com and then email me at kevin at risk-show.com. Let me know you pre-ordered the book and I'll sing your name at the end of the show. Also remember that in the end hosting, the hosting that I do 
after the final story, I list where risk is coming next. So be sure to listen because we've got so many places we're coming next. Right now we are looking for pitches for our upcoming shows in Boston, San Francisco, Detroit, Chicago, Minneapolis, Baltimore, and Washington, D.C., among others. But those are the ones that are most pressing now. So listen at the end of the show for more info about that. And you can always find us on the submissions page at risk-show.com whenever you want to pitch us a story, wherever you are in the world. Our final story on today's episode comes to us from Tija Mittal. Uh, You can find her at storytija.com. That's T-I-J-A. She told this one at our monthly show that we do at Caveat on the Lower East Side in Manhattan. Here is Tija Mittal now with a story we call Accidents Will Happen. My boyfriend Andrew and I woke up on a really beautiful Saturday morning in the boring suburbs of Maryland. And as we woke up, we were deciding between watching South Park or watching Fixer Upper, knowing that if we did watch Fixer Upper, we were going to spend the next three hours at Home Depot. (laughs) And I was looking forward to Andrew making pancakes and biscuits and eggs while I kept reminding him, you do this because I can't cook. I can cook. But instead, we decided it's about 10 a.m. We've got the whole day ahead of us. Let's just snuggle for a bit. Unfortunately, as we were snuggling, we were listening to his upstairs neighbors who were teenagers. I used to be a camp counselor, and it was at a gifted and talented camp for math students where we had to remind them not to try to climb lampposts and not to swing their keys because they could knock each other's eyes out, which is a thing you only realize when someone has knocked someone else's eye out. And these were the gifted kids, which tells you that even the smartest teenagers can't be trusted. And these were not those kids. And they were jumping up and down and up and down, and Andrew and I were just looking at each other like, these damn kids. And as we were kind of snuggling and looking at each other, all of a sudden, Andrew's gaze got very intense, and he said, I think I hear someone yelling for help. I jumped out of bed in my pajamas, grabbed my glasses and my phone, and I ran to the door. Andrew had to stay behind to put some clothes on, and I swung the door open and just saw blood everywhere in front of his landing. Blood drops the size of fists. I couldn't hear anything. I think my body just kind of wouldn't take in sound. And I saw this boy coming down the stairs. He's a black teenager with these big brown eyes that looked so sad and so scared. And he started walking towards me and I realized that his jaw was hanging open and that there was teeth in his jaw, but they weren't in the right order. They were scrambled and there was blood pooling and oozing. He couldn't talk. And as he started walking towards me, I was stuck and I realized that I couldn't move. But I stepped out just from sheer, just my muscles just decided to make me walk out of the door with my phone in my hands. And I walked to him and I said, what happened? And he tried to move his jaw and it wasn't happening. And I yelled back at Andrew, you need to grab a towel right now. In my normal life, I'm a strategy consultant. And I always have these checklists going on in my head so that I can manage whatever's going on. So I had the checklist, get a towel, make sure this guy is still standing. Maybe I should call 911. I called 911. 911, what's your emergency? Uh, There's a young man, he is standing in front of me, he's very injured from his mouth, he is bleeding profusely onto the ground, Uh, can you please send help right away? I don't know what his name is, I don't know anything else, but you need to send an ambulance right now. As I hung up the phone, I looked at this boy thinking, what happened to you? How did this, there was so much blood that it clearly had seeped through the landing upstairs. And in my head, I'm a child of the 80s, so I kept thinking, all right, I'm guessing a four-poster bed was probably involved. Like, they're probably jumping around on the bed, and like one of those things probably just got him in the jaw, right? And it was just bad news. Andrew came out, and he was comforting me. He gave the boy a towel. I saw this other boy coming from the stairs, the same stairs, but he was frantic. 
And suddenly I could hear again. I could hear someone else, and I could hear he was the one yelling for help. And he was so frantic, his hands were going to his temples, he was crying and sobbing. And I said, who are you? What is going on? Who is this kid? And he said, that's my cousin Dudu. And I said, well, what happened? And he said, he shot himself. And it was like the aftermath when a bomb goes off and everything starts ringing in your ears and it's like a flash of bright light in your eyes and it took a second for me to process. I'm from a very stereotypically nerdy Indian family and we don't do things with guns, we don't look at guns, we don't go hunting, like the only weapon of choice in our household is like a shoe thrown across the room to get your attention. <laughs> this was just, it was just too much for me to understand. I remember a couple years ago, my mom and I went to Gettysburg. They have this old-timey photo booth where you can dress up like an idiot or a cowboy or whatever, and this one photographer was really into this particular type of pose where you and the other person are pointing guns at each other. And I thought that was stupid. I was like, I don't think that's funny, I don't like this. So I decided to do that like duck hunting season thing where like I was looking down the barrel of a gun like an idiot. My mom had brought that up pretty recently, saying, you're such a nonviolent person that you couldn't even hold a gun to your mom as a joke. And now here's this teenage boy, shorter than me, muscular but smaller than me, who's bleeding from his face because he shot himself. And I didn't even know what that meant. What did it mean that he shot himself? Was he trying to kill himself? What was going on? It didn't look like he was afraid of his cousin. He was just kind of standing there in shock. So I just couldn't understand. I didn't know what was going on at all. And the cousin didn't stick around to tell us because he just ran off. I just stood there waiting for the ambulance with Andrew and this bloody child. I suddenly started realizing that he wasn't just in shock, but he was terrified. He put his arm around my waist and I froze for a second because I feel terrible saying this, but I was afraid of getting blood on me and I didn't want to hold him close. I don't know that I wanted to be emotionally close to him either, but I pulled him close anyway and I kind of touched the back of his head and patted him and tried to make some soothing sounds because that's part of the checklist too. Tell this kid that he's gonna be okay even if you don't know. I started feeling a little more connected and a little more close than probably I wanted to. And I had to ask myself, why are you and Andrew the only people out here? Why did you go outside? A couple seconds later, I hear someone pulling up and someone coming out of a car and just yelling. And I realize it's the police. I don't know why the police are there before the ambulance is there. I also, as an Indian woman, I'm not really sure where I stand on the racial matrix when it comes to like dealing with the police, but I decided like it's probably better me than maybe this kid. So I went with my hands up, kind of felt like that was smart, and went to confront this police officer who rolled out of the car like fucking Wesley Snipes in Blade with a New Order soundtrack behind him. This guy had clearly, like, he was dying to pull his gun on somebody. And so now I'm actually looking at a gun. Like, now there's an actual gun, not pointed at me, but it's there. It's, like, in the equation now. And I'm just, hey, hey, we don't need a gun right now. There's a really injured boy. Can you put the gun down? We just, we really need an ambulance. And the guy yells back, who are you? I said, I'm just a neighbor, just a neighbor lady, we're fine, there, no, there's nothing going on, but this kid really, really needs some help, can you please get an ambulance? I just, I don't think it's helpful to escalate, can you please put down your gun? And the guy yells back, you don't tell me to put my gun down. So I just backed away and walked back over to the landing, and Andrew goes, I think maybe I need to talk to the cops. And he was right. So I went back to the kid, and I just tried to kind of talk and comfort him as much as I could. A couple moments later, the EMTs came, thank God, and started talking to and attending to the boy, who, again, he couldn't speak. But what I realized is that as the EMTs were bandaging him up and debating what to do with him and ultimately deciding to take him to shock trauma, that the boy was now sitting, and he was trying to say something. And what I realized that he was saying was, tell my mom I love her. Someone told me and Andrew, you guys need to take a shower, you are covered in blood. We had been standing in a pool of the boy's blood for minutes. As I went and I took a shower, I took a second to think about my checklists and everything that we had just endured over the last couple of minutes. And I remembered that in college, I hadn't wanted to be a doctor because 
I thought I was gonna freak out at the sight of blood. I wasn't sure that I could handle an emergency. I decided I didn't even wanna be a psychologist because I wasn't sure if I could handle the burden of people's problems and issues. And I hadn't taken into account that in a situation like this, someone's humanity might just come to the forefront and guide them through the situation. When I got out of the shower and started talking to Andrew, we just spent the rest of the day in the apartment building that was cordoned off with yellow tape and we did end up watching Fixer Upper. We couldn't go anywhere. A couple weeks later, I found out that the reason that the boy had shot himself was that they'd found a gun and they were playing with the gun for Instagram photos and the gun had gone off and shot the boy in the face and it actually lodged in his shoulder. But there was so much blood on this child's body, you couldn't even tell that there were two wounds. I couldn't understand, like even just for a photo for my mom and I in Gettysburg, like I couldn't even joke with a gun. And now these kids were like playing with this gun and it had gone off. And the reality behind the picture was that they were both sobbing and one of them went to shock trauma. I couldn't, I couldn't understand. As the situation resolved itself, Andrew ran into the neighbors and we found out that Dudu was gonna be okay. I mean, technically okay. I realized after they moved out I was probably never gonna see them again, and that was probably for the best. But I thought about what I'd love to say to them, these teenagers, if I did ever see them again. I would tell them how angry I was at them for endangering themselves, for endangering us. Andrew and I hadn't even heard a gunshot. We had no idea what was going on. Those walls and those floors are not that thick. I'm angry at you guys for possibly ruining your future, possibly ruining my future and I can't believe how stupid you are. And what I would say to Dudu is, I am so glad you get to tell your mom that you love her. Thank you. When the lights goes down That is all for this week's episode, folks. This is Nightmares on Wax behind me now. And we just heard from Tija Mittal, who you can find at storytija.com. Now, also, she'll have a new storytelling show of her own that she's hosting called Mistakes Were Made, Stories of Failure, premiering at Caveat on July 23rd. Well, I'll tell you, it is so important to us that you come out and see us if we're in your town and that you pitch us if we're coming to your town soon. And I have a big list of dates for all of that to run by you right now. On June 8th, we are in Tampa, Florida for the very first time on June 8th. On June 9th, we're in Orlando for the very first time. June 9th in Orlando. On June 16th, we're back in Los Angeles at the Bootleg Theater. And on June 28th, we're back at Caveat in New York City. July 17th, 
is the date that the Risk book will be released. So the big release party will be at Caveat in New York City on July 17th. And then on July 20th, we're in Boston, technically Somerville. But if you live anywhere near Boston, you should be pitching us. The themes that night are deadly or fake or innocence. So that's July 20th in Somerville, near Boston. On July 27th, we're in San Francisco, California. The themes that night, what was I thinking, or spiritual, or under the influence? That's July 27th in San Francisco. On August 3rd, we're in Detroit. The themes that night are crazy, or the stranger, or animal. So pitch us, folks, in Detroit for August 3rd. On August 10th, we're in Chicago. The themes that night are vulnerable or mean or cover-ups. That's August 10th in Chicago, Illinois. On August 11th, we return to Minneapolis. And the themes that night are obsession or dirty or metamorphosis. That's August 11th in Minneapolis. On August 17th, we're in Baltimore. Themes are rabbit holes or me against nature, or pride on August 17th in Baltimore. August 18th is Washington, D.C. The themes that night are power, or barbaric, or opposites. On September 6th, Portland, Oregon. The themes that night are at my worst, or lies, or ecstasy. On September 7th, Seattle, Washington. The themes that night are the worst, or glorious, or breakdown. On September 8th, Vancouver. The themes that night are spectacle, or the rules, or full volume. And uh, that's all I'll list for now. So go to the submissions page at risk-show.com, pitch us your story, or if you just want to come out and see us live, mark those dates down, go to risk-show.com slash tour, to get your tickets and come see us as soon as possible. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. White and Shelly Jordan and Amelia Brock and Audra Colum. There's Abigail and Michael and Leah Wolf. Wolf. There's Louise Backland and Kristen um, uh, Bagley. Kristen Bagley. There's salary Ralph. Ralph. Oh, yes, salary Ralph. Ralph. There's Robin Oddloom and Scott Penman. Scott Penman. 